Well, good morning. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. And as we open it, we open it with an expectation that you use your word to change our hearts. You communicate to us through your word. You have revealed truth uh, that is applicable uh, to our heart, that, that this isn't just a mental exercise of education, but that, Lord, you would take your word this morning and penetrate our hearts, change us, conform us to your image. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Like many of you, my childhood was, was a little uneven. I became a Christian at, a, at an early age, but really never experienced discipleship, that I learned the things I was supposed to do. Um, but, but pretty quickly, Christianity almost became just a sense of, of moralism. You, you accept the gospel, and then you just go do the right thing. And as a result of that, when I got away to the university, uh, my life, I spiraled. I, I had a really difficult time my freshman year because I, I experienced other worldviews. I started to hear different people's ideas, and I wasn't rooted in discipleship. I hadn't been equipped to understand God's Word. I hadn't been equipped or understand how to pray or how to, sh how to share my faith. And so God used the next three years in, in campus ministry to to introduce me to discipleship, to introduce me to the Bible, to introduce me to, to the fact that God wanted all of me and that He wanted to take my life and conform it to His image and to bear fruit through me. And, and so when Antonia and I got married in 1998, we had a heart together that our desire was to move to Denton for me to go to seminary while serving at a local church and then uh, at the time, it was to go back to Tennessee, but, but we knew deep down that our burden was to equip the saints, that I wanted to be a part of a church that would equip believers to walk in faithfulness to God. And so I started out as a civil engineer. I worked for a civil engineer for a few years, and our plan was to, to engineer uh, until we paid off some school debt, until we'd saved up some money because... I wanted to go to Dallas Seminary and get a degree, but that 120 hours and the X number of dollars for, per hour seemed like an insurmountable task. And so it, it really almost felt like a pipe dream. I was gonna work as an engineer for a while and then we we're gonna go to school, but I had no idea how that would work. But we had communicated to our family, to our friends, our burden to, to be equippers, our burden to make disciples, our burden to see you know, the churches I was raised in that had, that had pastors that, that didn't make disciples themselves because they didn't know how, that we wanted to be a part of equipping and helping and shaping and shepherding. We didn't know how. Until one day, probably six, eight months into our marriage, I get a call. And it was from Antonia's aunt, Cindy, who is Jenny's mom, incidentally. And she said, hey, Antonia, we were talking with some friends of ours in our church. We we're telling them about your heart for discipleship, your heart to equip pastors, and they want to hear more. And uh, we set up a time, I, I made a call uh, to David Whitlow the following week, and they were really excited about what we were doing. And they said, hey, we'd like to be a part of this. And I was almost like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, we're not, we're not ready to actually pull the trigger yet. We're, this is a dream. But, but they heard what I wanted to do, and they said, we're on. We're in. 
And so monthly for the next six years, this family just gave to us and gave to us and gave to us and gave to us. And the thing is, it wasn't even so much the money. It was the fact that, that Cindy believed enough in us to tell the story and, and David and Kathy Whitlow believed in this story enough to say we got to be a part of it. And they're giving their heart behind it, all of us, immediately moved me into an accelerated mode so that I started my application to seminary that I thought was some pop dream four or five years down the road. I started that application right away and enrolled within a few months for the fall because this family said we're in and they, and they took the resources they had and they poured them into us as a family. And so when I graduated uh, from Dallas Seminary, I called David Whitlow and I said, you know, brother, you have no idea the encouragement. And there were several other families that kind of jumped on this train that enabled us to go to seminary. But, but this initial thing they did in saying, we believe in you, we, we, the encouragement that came from that that they offered got the ball rolling in a way that we could imagine. I called them and I said, hey, for the rest of my life, any fruit that my ministry and Antonia's ministry bears you're storing an eternal dividend in heaven because you believed in us and you poured into us and you changed our lives. And as I think about everybody in this room, we've all got stories like that where someone took this thing they had, they were faithful with this thing they had, and God used it to produce manifold results. So many more results than they could have even imagined. You've seen it in your own lives with things you've given. And so as we look at this text today, I think the big idea that, that we're going to pull away from here is that God actually uses everyday faithfulness to provide for His family. That, that, that He provides far above anything we need. And you may be sitting here today thinking, I don't have that much to offer. I've only got a little bit. And, and I think from the text today, you're going to see that God can take just that little bit and produce fruit beyond anything you can imagine. You know, um, as, as we look at this text, the, the big idea that I want to unpack today is the idea that Jesus works through the hands of ordinary people doing ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary tasks for His glory. That's what we're going to see today. Ordinary people, ordinary things, accomplish extraordinary things for His glory. Our text is Matthew chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 13 to 21, as Lyndall read. And, and, and this text really magnifies and, and continues. Remember, Mark's purpose is to show Jesus clearly as the Messiah. And, and on one level, this text is going to fully accomplish that, right? It's, it's going to continue to, to build the case that Jesus is undoubtedly the Messiah, that He has power over nature, that He has power over creation, that, that on one hand, this text does that. Uh, but, but it's also going to show that, that He does that miraculous work through the people. And so we're going to see as we read through the text, notice Jesus uh, direct involvement in this miracle actually takes a back seat as the disciples come more and more into focus, as the work that He's delegating to the disciples becomes 
more into focus. We're, we're beginning to see in Matthew, uh, Jesus is going to start spending more time with the twelve, really focusing on His transition that He will leave them behind to do the ministry. And this particular miracle is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. So we can't really overstate its importance because all four of the Gospel writers record it. So let's dig in. When Jesus heard about John, He withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by Himself. When the people heard of this, they followed Him on foot from the cities. He went ashore. He saw a large crowd and He felt compassion for them and He healed them their sick. And we know from Luke that He withdrew near Bethsaida, which is on the northeast edge of the Sea of Galilee. And this is in Philip's Tetrarchy. He's, he's leaving Antipas' Tetrarchy uh, to Philip's Tetrarchy on the northeast edge of the sea. And it says He withdrew to be alone. He, he withdrew to be with just the disciples. And, and I think to myself, why would Jesus have withdrawn? Certainly there's a physical element, a weariness that has come from, from this ministry that, that we just covered the rejection in Nazareth. And, and the, the text itself tells us it's, it's after hearing the report of John the Baptist. And so there's a physical element with this, draw, with this withdrawal. But I think the spiritual element of this withdrawal, again, the rejection of Nazareth, the beheading of John, how could we be in a world, not that Jesus is confounded by it, but the heaviness of the fact that the perverted scene that we've just seen in this banquet where John the Baptist's head is brought in, for Jesus to hear that, there had to have been a, a spiritual weariness, that, an overwhelmingness at the wickedness. And then finally, the emotional. We don't, we don't get a lot of details of, of John and Jesus' relationship, but there's an emotional weight of the reality that John's gone. But larger than that, certainly Jesus is seeing the shadows and recognizing that John's death is a foreshadowing of his own death. So this is, a, this is a challenging time and Jesus withdrew from a boat to a secluded place and, 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 and He gets there and the crowds are already there. The, the, think about their exit and the, the, the eagerness they must have had to have gotten around the lake before He got across the lake. That they're there to join Him. They beat Him there. He wants to be alone with His disciples. We might have been annoyed. We might have, you know, if this text were about me, that, that it might have ended with a pretty irritated statement to the crowds, but not Jesus. That He feels compassion for them. His reaction is the opposite of what my reaction would have been. I, in thinking about preparing for this and trying to imagine Jesus withdrawal and then everybody's still there. And the fact that He responds with compassion. When I traveled, I would each day sit down at the end of the day or every day would, would send a journal back to Antonia. that just sort of recounted the day spiritually. Here are the things we did. And, and we did it for a couple of reasons. One was to get her involved in the trips that I was traveling as I was around the world and, and, and she was praying and, and she was working here at home while I was working overseas so that she could be a part of what was happening. I wanted her to experience that with me. But then also when I got back home, the idea of recounting a 10-day trip just wouldn't work. So, 
So we sat, and, and I would do these journals, and each day I would send something back. And so this week, I went back into my, my old email, and I pulled up those journals, and I searched for the word tired. And I was embarrassed. Man, I was a whiny baby. That I was tired here, and I was tired there, and I was tired everywhere. And, and I can remember these incidences when, when you would be sitting there and maybe you've just traveled into a spot, you're really tired and you've gone to the morning service that went three hours and, and, and your host says, hey, would you like to come back tonight for church? We're just doing a worship service and, and internally feeling like I really want to go to sleep tonight. I really want to go to sleep tonight. But, but saying yes. And, and, and now in fairness, one of the encouraging things of those letters is several of those, those notes ended with, I was really tired, but we did this, and it ended up being an amazing blessing. But that's not my natural response. My natural response is irritability and, or, or guilt towards the people that want something from me when I'm ir irritated. And, and here Jesus, though, responds with compassion. And this compassion, it's, it's visceral. It's, it's from the inside. It's, it's a pity. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mercy that actually comes out of and leads to action. It's like a gut reaction, inward feeling that leads to reaction. And Jesus feels that for the crowd. And as we think about the well-to-do in our day, how do the wealthy typically look on the masses? Typically with condescension, derision. Typically with blame. Typically with a lack of compassion. But here's Jesus, God, who says, no, I look at the masses and I'm moved to act for them. And Jesus, yet again, emphasizes the mercy of Jesus, the Messiah. It says he healed their sick, their physical needs, their spiritual need. You know, Matthew here talks about the physical healing. Mark says that he teaches them, and Luke actually emphasizes both. But, but Jesus is, I mean, Matthew is wanting you to see the point here. Jesus felt compassionate. He met their physical needs. He healed them. He cared for them. He's the good shepherd. He loves his people. And so the intro to this entire miracle story is meant to challenge us by showing us, we begin with this example of Jesus as a servant-hearted minister that puts the needs of others in front of His own. That's challenging. That's opposite to the view of, of worldly leaders, but He puts the needs of others before His own. He meets their need. Let's keep going. In verse 15, it says, It was evening... The disciples came to him and they said, This place is desolate. The hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said, We, here, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. You see, the disciples have a blind spot. It, it's hard not to look back at these texts. It's like when you read through the Old Testament and, and you see the Israelites continuing to rebel against God and you're like, what are you thinking? It's like the disciples have been with Jesus. They've seen Him perform miraculous act after miraculous act. I mean, right here in this moment, it's, He's talking about healing, the, healing those that came to Him. 
and you're worried about where you're going to get food, they're, they're still only thinking about the physical need in front of them. They're still only thinking about the physical solutions that they have in front of them. They're not accounting for the supernatural. They're blinded to the situation in front of them. You know, the reality of the situation that the nearest town near them might, might have been a few hundred people, maybe a thousand. And so the idea of sending thousands of people into these villages, even if they send these people away, it's not practical that the nearby villages are going to be able to feed these people. The fact that we're in spring, the next passage, he's going to say he had them sit in the grass. The idea of lush grass, the idea that it's spring, tells you that the stores are, are even low, that even if these cities had stores to host people, it's springtime. There's no, there's no bounty for them to go enjoy. Matthew's making the point that Jesus is, has the disciples exactly where he wants them. He's asking them to do a task that's impossible. There's not, a, there's not a logistical solution in the realm of the natural world that can solve this problem. And in this place, the people can't fend for themselves. But then Jesus is emphatic. He says, you give them something to eat. You, disciples, Give them something to eat. He doesn't say, sit back, I'm going to give them something to eat. He says, you give them something to eat. There's a lesson here that Jesus is giving the disciples. You guys are shepherds. Shepherds feed the sheep. That He knows He's going away and these men will shepherd the flock. And he, so He says, you feed the sheep. Shepherds feed the sheep. They take care of God's sheep. And they say, you know, we have this bread, this barley bread. It's barley is the grain of the poor. You know, these fish are probably dried or pickled, uh, that they're used pretty much just to give the bread flavor. And so this is going to be a basic Galilean peasant diet. And so here's Jesus, even though he's been healing the sick with this miracle things are going to be different he's going to accomplish his purposes through the disciples for this miracle look at verse 18 he says bring them here to me talking about the fish and and we know from john's account these fish came from a young boy and and so there would even be a sermon there of this young boy that brings forward and says hey here's what i got and God taking it and blessing it. But for the purpose of this story, we're seeing the delegation of this ministry from Jesus to His disciples. He says, bring them here to me. You know, it's interesting. When a traveling speaker, whether it's, it's in the first century or whether it's today, the traveling speaker usually comes in as a guest to the banquet. But here Jesus, He's... he's not going to be a guest at the banquet. He's actually going to be the host of this banquet. He says, bring them to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food, breaking the loaves. He gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied. 
I think right off the bat, you're supposed to see a contrast here of the order Jesus has them sit down and they all begin to eat. And, and just in the previous chapter, you've got this image of, of the banquet of the king where John the Baptist, his head was brought forward. That we, we see a banquet of the world with Antipas. We see a banquet of the Lord in the spring on the green grass. Likely, Matthew is, is wanting his Jewish audience to think back at this point. Jesus feeding these people in the field. What, what happens in this story, if you're a Jewish reader, should bring to mind maybe an image of, of the manna that God provides the Exodus generation. They just came, they trusted, and He provided. Or more similarly to this specific miracle, is Elisha's feeding of a hundred men with five loaves in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. It says, A man came from Baal Shalashah and brought a man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, Give them to the people that they may eat. And these barleys would have been sufficient for one person each. We've only got 20 of them. His attendant said, What? Shall I set this board for a hundred men? And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate. They had some left over according to the word of the Lord. That the reality is, uh, as God is accomplishing His purposes here, uh, we're looking backward. We're seeing that Jesus is doing something special here. This, this hearkens to the work of God in ages past. Uh, what's interesting is in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we don't even know for sure that the disciples fully understand, or that the, that the crowd even fully understands that Jesus is providing the food. They just, from, from the records in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we just understand that they are getting the food. It's just showing up. But in John, they do understand. It says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which He has performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world because they thought backward. So Jesus, perceiving that they were attending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain. And as we see in a minute, Jesus orders everyone to sit. You know, this word for sit when He commands them to sit is the same word He'll use later in the upper room at the Last Supper to describe the lounging that's taking place. That, that the imagery here is of a banquet, recline, the way you would sit at a formal banquet. Uh, this is table fellowship. Jesus is pointing these people to a new community. He's the head of the family, as we'll see from the fact that, that He orders them to sit down. So, so, so this, this feeding isn't just a miracle, it's also a picture of a banquet with Jesus as the head. And, and not only does it look back, manna and the miracle of the prophet, in this text we see it functioning presently here in front of us. He's feeding. He's taking care of the needs. We're learning about the kind of shepherd Jesus is, but it even looks to the future as, as we see shadows of the coming Messiah. 
the coming messianic banquet that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 25. Verses 6 to 9, he says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the people on the mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over the people, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. So as as we look at Jesus feeding the multitude here, we're meant to think back to God's provision in the desert. We're meant to think back to the prophet that God used to feed the people, but we're also meant to look forward to this ultimate banquet where we will dine with Jesus as redeemed and cleaned, celebrating that feast. Also note that that, that even the wording Matthew uses, that he ordered them, he took the food, he looked to heaven, he gave thanks that he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. Does that sound familiar? In the Last Supper, when they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. In Acts 27, after 40 days without food and a shipwreck, Paul, he says, from the head. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. And having said that, he took the bread. He gave thanks in the presence of all. He broke it and he began to eat. And the point is, this is how we celebrate a meal. Acknowledging that God is the one who gives it to us. That we give thanks to him, we break it, and then we eat it together. So it's not just the miracle itself of, wow, He provided fish, but it's the image of God's provision. It's the image of a community of believers coming together, enjoying each other's fellowship, acknowledging that the fellowship that we have together is because of God and His provision. That Jesus took, He he blessed, He broke, and He gave. But it's not the meal that's the big deal here. Surely this isn't the first time Jesus and the disciples have enjoyed a meal with a multitude. Let's look at how Jesus accomplishes this. Look at how the disciples, ordering to sit on the grass, He took the loaves and looking, He he gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. The disciples are the ones that feed the crowd. It says there are 5,000 men, so maybe you have 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people in this audience. We don't know for sure. It's a lot. If you, if you think about the super pit, it holds 10,000 people, so imagine 12 servers serving that many people. I mean, it's, it's not the disciples took a big pile and they went through the crowd one time 
and just gave all that food to everybody in the crowd, what would it have taken? They took some, they went and fed a few. They came back to the Lord, they took more, they went and gave a few. We don't get the mechanics of how Jesus multiplied it. We only get the image of the disciples coming back to get more and going back out. It's an iterative process. It's a little of this, take it out. It's a little of this, take it out. It's a little of this, take it out. They take the food and return to Jesus who supplies them. He provides. There's nothing in this story to imply that the disciples provided. Jesus is the provider, but the disciples are the instrument. And we're meant to see this image of their faithfulness going out and coming back to the Lord. They, they function almost like go-betweens. They are God's instrument for carrying out this miracle, right? That God accomplishes it through them. He uses them as His instrument to carry out this miracle. And that's how God asks us to work. That we have resources that God multiplies. That Jesus works through the hands of ordinary people doing ordinary things. There's nothing magical about what the disciples here did. They were carrying food. They were sharing it. God uses ordinary people doing ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary tasks for His glory. That He is delegating this work to the disciples just like He delegates work to you and I. We take the small things that we have, evangelism, discipleship, teaching, serving, giving. We take these little things that God's given us and He multiplies it and accomplishes His purpose in extraordinary ways. That... My old boss used to say that one of the things that makes him question the wisdom of God is the fact that he uses us. There had to be a more efficient way to accomplish his purposes than by working through fallen humans. Think about the Bible. It would have been much easier for God just to have, bam, there's the Bible. It's all true. But he chose over thousands of years to use regular men to record exactly what he wanted them to write using their own grammar, their own language, their own tendencies. And on the back side of that, he produced his perfect word. He took these fallen men, these disciples. You know, as you read through the Gospels, the disciples are not, they're not our first superheroes. They're fallen men. We record their mistakes. And yet God uses them each and every day. You and I are flawed. We're fallen. It's almost, I was saying something to, to somebody recently. I was like, it's almost like God ties both hands behind his backs and says, I can still show you my glory. I can still accomplish my purposes. I can even work through these people to do it. But that's how he chooses to do it. Working through ordinary people, doing ordinary things to accomplish his purposes. You know, how does God meet your needs normally? He accomplishes them usually through people who help you. God provided this for me. You know, in our story, the Whitlows stepped in and said, hey, we believe in you, and here's how we're going to show it. God used the faithfulness of those people to change our entire lives. I wouldn't be here today 
not being dramatic, just the facts. That God works through ordinary people. But then look at the, you know, even Ruth. How does God care for Naomi in the story of Ruth? He does it through a faithful daughter-in-law who obeys God, lives a faithful life, and by the end of the story, Naomi is restored. Not because God miraculously intervened with a lightning bolt, but because Ruth and Boaz were faithful. That's how God does it. He often does it through very ordinary means. And look at the results. Verse 20, they ate to the full and they were satisfied. They picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate beside women and children. You know, the number 12 is not necessarily significant beyond the fact that they're all involved in each aspect of the miracle, that, that all 12 of the disciples are involved in this work. All 12 of the disciples carry out their basket to bring these baskets back in. There, there may be significance because later when he feeds the, the smaller multitude, he's going to have seven baskets. And certainly 12 and seven are two numbers that are prevalent throughout Scripture with, with, with the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples, seven being the number of completion. But I think, I think we can get sometimes too caught up in the minutia of the details and we miss the bigger point that, that all 12 disciples are involved in all aspects of this ministry and that God has provided over and abundant, abundant what they expected. And by the way, these are large baskets. Josephus described this type of basket as equipment that a foot soldier might carry to hold all his equipments, his ax, his pickaxe, his saw, his rope, his sleeping gear, so that he didn't have to use a, a donkey. Um, this is the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses in Judges 6 to describe a basket large enough to carry the meat of an entire goat. So if you think about it, just one of these 12 baskets has way more food than the original allotment had. This is a bountiful blessing. This banquet is... It, that, that, that God is lavish in His grace. He's accomplished far more than what the people needed. In the Mediterranean region, hospitality was a high value in general. A host always wanted to have enough meal that there were leftovers so that everyone left satisfied. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't let the disciples just let this go to waste. He has them collect it. That God supplies our needs, but, but moving forward from this story, if we could have followed them around a day or two, I'm pretty sure they would have used this food. And I think there's, there's even a, a, a small lesson in this, basically, that, that we can't ignore what God has already provided. A lot of times we want God to intervene with these new magnificent ways when He's given us all that we need right here in front of us. That we are stewards of the resource that God's given us. And we need to live that way. You can't ignore what He's provided. You know, the disciples focused on how little they had. But Jesus fully appreciates all that God has available. And I think as we look at this text, we realize that we need to look at the world through the lens of Christ, recognizing that God has so much more than we need. That we don't fall into the trap of the disciples that says, I've only got this. But that we're able to say, man, God, you can do 
anything. The disciples are focused on the limitation. Jesus says, hey, I've got all the resources that you need. Again, they fed, you know, 10, 15,000 people through this miracle. And God did it through the disciples. So what do we take away from this message? What do we take away from this text? I think first we start with the idea that Jesus is Lord. Matthew has put another piece of evidence in the file to show that Jesus is Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the coming one that's been expected. Jesus is the Messiah, but also that He cares. Jesus has compassion for the crowds. He's not disinterested in the crowds. He's not bothered by the crowds. He's not irritated by the crowds. He is our example of a servant leader who lays down his life. That he gives up the convenience. He gives up the the comfort. He gives up the the plan and the goal. And he says, I'm going to take care of the crowd. That he is a leader for us in his servanthood. That he is a model for us. And then also He cares. That, that I didn't talk about this a lot earlier, but whatever you're facing, whatever difficulty, whatever challenge, whatever hardship, whatever lack, whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever hurt, that Jesus cares. He's concerned with it. He feels compassion for it. You are His people. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you are His people. And He cares that there's nothing going on in your life that He doesn't know about, that He doesn't care about, that He isn't concerned about, that He isn't willing to resolve for you. And then next, He asks us to do what we can't by giving Him what we can and trusting Him with the results. If He works through ordinary people doing ordinary things, then He's asking us to do what we can't by giving us what we can, by by giving Him what we can and trusting Him to accomplish His purposes. It's all throughout Scripture. God uses the staff in Moses' hand. Moses already had it to part the Red Sea. David uses a slingshot and stones with skills that he's developed to defeat Goliath. Rahab, it's a thread. Ruth, as I talked about earlier, it's her faithfulness and willingness to glean in the field. Samson with a jawbone. Elisha with the widow's jars. God uses small things. He uses everyday little things, everyday faithfulness to accomplish His purposes. I almost thought about titling this sermon the disciples feed the 5,000. If it, if it, it, you know, that would go against every single outline I've ever seen anywhere. But, but the idea is that, that, that God uses the disciples to feed the 5,000. He's ultimately the one that does it, but He does it through their faithfulness. And so what we've got to do is recognize that God has given each and every one of you gifts. He's given each and every one of you skills, talents, abilities, things, resources, And He wants to use those things to accomplish His purposes. And He does it in a supernatural way when you are willing to go and back. So whether it's prayer, whether it's listening, whether it's the gospel and sharing your faith, 
whether it's stepping out to make disciples, don't be discouraged by the idea that I have nothing to offer. I think Satan uses that tool a lot. I have nothing to offer. What did the disciples offer? Five loaves and two fish to feed 10,000 people. But God took that. He multiplied it. He accomplished it. But there's also the image of, of dependence on Jesus. What I'm not saying is go out and magically try to do all these things. But it's in dependence on our Lord that we walk out in faithfulness and we go back to Him for more and we walk out in faithfulness and we go back to Him for more. That's the Christian life. That's how we meet the needs of, of each other. That's how we meet the needs of our neighbor. That we walk faithfully in the small things He's asked us to do. And boom! He produces fruit. He does extraordinary things. One of the first shirts I got when I started walking with the Lord because I, I don't know about you guys, but like the mid-90s were like the Christian t-shirt age. And, and, and I didn't like a lot of them, so I didn't get many, but I, I remember coming across one at a, I think it was a conference bookstore, and it, and it, just, it was just a little picture of, of fish and loaves. And on the back, it was just in script. It said, he took, a, he took a sack lunch and fed thousands. Just imagine what he could do with you. And I thought, man, that's it. He took me, He took you. Look what He's already done in your life. Don't fall victim to the myth that you've got to have everything together, that you've got to have a lot of gifts to bring to the table or God can't use you. What, is, what are the simple things in your life that God has given you, the resources that He's given you? And how does He take that and magnify it and bring extraordinary glory to His name? And then finally, we look forward to this family unity that we get to experience it here in the local church in, in just a shadow form of what that ultimate banquet will be when we are with God eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. That we appreciate and enjoy this fellowship and we live it to the fullest while looking forward to the day when we do it, when there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no hardship. We long for that day looking forward to, to the shadow or to the fulfillment of what this shadow paints us. So before we celebrate communion together as a, as a picture of that, let's pray. God, we're so thankful for Your Word and the way Your Word challenges us. Jesus, You are so tender. Uh, you are so... Um, aware of where we are in our needs. And this story is such a gentle, beautiful picture of how you accomplish your purposes, that, that you felt compassion for the masses, that you healed, you cared for. And at the same time, you met everyday needs through the work of your people. And so Lord, I pray for Dina Community Church, that our hearts might be pricked that we might be willing to take the resources that you've given us to put them in your hands, to allow you to multiply them, and that we would continue to, to go out in faithfulness and return to you in faithfulness. And Lord, that, that, that you might do extraordinary things through that. I thank you for 
the way that you've worked in each of our lives, the, the way that you brought each of us together and that each of us would have stories of, of people who were faithful to minister to us and alongside us. And Lord, help us be a people that returns to you and goes out to minister to those you bring in our lives. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you most of all for the, the penalty you paid on our behalf for our sin and the fact that you reconcile us to yourself. We pray this in your son's name, through your spirit. Amen.